Hello, podcast listeners. This is Patrick Torres, the Artistic Director of Raleigh Little Theater, and I know it's been quite some time since we've released an episode of our podcast um, as we have um, really worked through this difficult year um, and faced all of the challenges of the pandemic. We had put a pause on uh, the podcast, but we are happy to be back and we're happy to bring back the podcast in support of our production of Katori Hall's The Mountaintop. On today's podcast, you'll hear me talking with director Philip Bernard-Smith about the play and uh, how the play relates to the world that we're living in. Uh, before we get into that, I just wanted to say that the dates for the show are June 10th through the 19th. It will be performed outdoor in our Stevenson Amphitheater. The day the play does feature some strong language, so we're recommending it for ages 16 and up. But we're really hopeful that you'll join us for this as we close out this really complex, interesting, and uh, uh, quite a journey of a season uh, with this beautiful, wonderful play. Uh, I've gotten to be in rehearsals uh, for the play, and it's just um, it's just an incredible piece of art, and uh, really uh, makes you think, makes you wrestle, and uh, we really hope that you'll join us. So uh, this conversation starts kind of right in the middle of things, as Philip and I, when you put us together, there's not a lack of things that we want to talk about. So I hope you enjoy our conversation, and welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, I love this play, man. I realize that, too. I love it. I love the story. I love the idea. I love how she nitpicked history and took pieces of reality out and charmed it into this incredible story that is, this story is for me, one of those, one of those stories where you want to believe it, even though, you know, the character is, you know, made up, but you want to believe it. Right. Right. And we've seen those kinds of stories before. Mm -hmm. We've seen the kinds of stories, Peter Pan, you know, uh, just, you know, all the stories that take us on that little fantasy excerpt from what reality is, you know. Right. Um, you know, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm -hmm. We know the part that is the reality and then we know the part that takes us on the escape. And so with this one, you know, the mountaintop, we know the iconic image of Dr. King. But if we had to daydream or fantasy or go off the reality trail, why not travel with an angel? Mm -hmm. Why not let it be an angel? Mm -hmm. And what is that like? You know, if we had to make a choice, who to go with? You know, let's go with an angel and see where that takes us. Right. It just makes... It makes the story, <laughs> you know, good. Yeah, it's incredible. This makes it good. Yeah, it's it's such it's it's uh, the the writing is so smart. Yeah, it's so smart. And, you know, as an actor, you know, we have choices, and that's our job. And you know, my teacher always said, "But your job is to make the best of many choices." Right. And so when Katori Hall was writing, she had all these choices, and she made the best of many choices that turned into something that just takes us away, you know, takes our heart away from us, takes our breath away from us. And then, you know, 2012, she wrote this and then how relevant it is now, you know, how was she so clairvoyant and, you know, prophetic in her writing where she says these, you know, 
important lines, you know, I can't breathe, you know, when she says, uh, is what is this vision? You know, all of these things have us thinking right now is we're looking at our future thoughts and we're looking at what history has, you know, we know about history with what happened in his time and Dr. King's life and the civil rights movement. We have this glaring Black Lives Matter movement now. And then we're wondering, what is tomorrow holding for us? And we're doing all that without this play. And then this play comes along and says, let's go to the mountaintop. It's a journey. Yeah. 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 It's a journey. Oh, yeah. That's so... I, I mean, I was saying to the actors in rehearsal the other day, just talking about that journey, I, you know, the the play is, is short. The play is, yeah. you know, for uh, in the grand scheme of theater, it's pretty short. It's one act. There's no intermission. And um, But I said, you know, it's every bit as Shakespearean as any Shakespeare play. Yes. In terms of its depth and its scope and kind of where you have to be as a performer and just the language is so smart and, and well-constructed. There's um, there's really not a piece out of place, you yeah. know, and it's just coming from this place for, it's coming from the guts and the soul. Yeah. And I, I, I it's, it's, it's sneaky big, you know, it's, it, so I like the word journey. Yeah. You're right. It's a huge journey. It is. Talk to us a little bit. Um, Philip, I know because you're a historian Mm-hmm. and a scholar and a teacher. Um, and you were already talking a little bit about why, why, why you love the play, but talk to us a little bit about what's going on in the world the night before Dr. King was assassinated, which is when this play takes place. It's a fictionalized account of what might have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the world like in that moment? What was that night like? Well, you know, we're talking about you know, April 1968. In that world, I'll just say up front, I was a little older than seven months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I was told I was born in, into a time of fire. Mm-hmm. And it, that was literal, you know, after the death of Dr. King, major cities, major urban cities were rioting, and there was a lot of fire in the world. So I, I came into the world under those circumstances. The broader scope was our country was at war, Vietnam. And many of our you know, young men were going off to fight a war that much of the conscience of the country was not really on board with, right? We had just had the assassination of a president. And so this was a very heightened time of a social unrest there was, uh, you know, political agendas on the minds of America where much like today, a lot of people were unsure and we were grappling with the possibilities of change in America at that time. There was uh, so part of the life of Dr. King at this point was he was on a downturn. You know, he was no longer like the big name, you know, you know, mid 50s. He was, you know, the guy. He was still powerful. He's still influential. But there was a time that 
the times were changing and people were not really vested in um, nonviolence. They were excited with what Stokely Carmichael was saying. They were interested in what, you know, Huey P. Newton was talking about. They want this young generation wanted some change and they wanted it right now. And they believed that maybe this nonviolence is not working because they keep seeing these results that were not favorable for in African-Americans and people in this country. So his voice was starting to fade. There were new voices that were starting to appear. And I think at this point in his life, he wanted to find something that appealed to a broader base. And he went after the concept of the poor people's campaign. And this was to unite all people of all nationalities who were being affected by the disproportional economic politics of the day. And so Memphis at that time was having a, a sanitation worker strike. He believed that that was a great place to launch the idea. And he started to politicize the poor people in their worth to the country, not just, you know, the uh, racial injustice against African-Americans. Right. So a lot of things were happening. I believe he wanted to see something on a grander scale that I don't think the world at that time could really wrap their even people within his organization couldn't wrap their heads around such a big dream as he's as it's stated in, in the piece. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then he gives this speech. Oh, yeah. Talk to us about the speech. Well, he, he came to Memphis. Uh, this was his actually his third time. Um, the last time he came, they were going to do a protest and it erupted into, you know, a riot. And so on this return, there was this, uh, injunction that said you couldn't protest. <laughs> so they were going to do it anyway. And so of course, uh, he came back and he was honoring his, his word. He was going to come back and make this, this protest happen on behalf of the sanitation workers. While he's on the flight, he's sick. There's a bomb threat in Atlanta on his plane. So when he gets there, he's already unnerved. He's not feeling very well. He goes to the hotel and he sends his his team, you know, Jesse and Abenaki to speak on his behalf. Well, Abenaki specifically. And when he gets because and there's a huge uh, storm brewing. I think there were several touchdowns, tornadoes, and there was a bad storm. He didn't believe a lot of people would show up at the temple. So he said, I'll go get some rest. So he's at the hotel, the Lorraine Motel, getting some rest. And he gets a call from Ralph Abernathy saying, there's tons of people here and they want to hear you. So he gets up tired and makes himself, gets himself down there and delivers the mountaintop speech. He's very sick. And he kind of goes off the script of what he had originally written. So we kind of see this as he was aware of the world that he was in and his circumstances. But he made this very clear to whoever was listening. <laughs> you know, we got some difficult days ahead. But I'm not worried about that now. You know, I may not make it there with you. You know the speech. And then the next day we see this, you know, this tragedy unfold before our eyes mm. yeah so then talk a little bit about 
so that is all the the history of it. That's like the truth of what was going on. And Katori Hall, the playwright for the Mountaintop, drops this story into the middle of that moment. So, what do you think the play? What's she up to? What she? What's she trying to? Um, in in the decision to fictionalize this this moment in his life in that hotel room, um, what does she want us to hear? I could I could say what I think. I can only guess. Uh, Katori Hall is her own genius, and uh, I wouldn't dare begin to try to think on that. You know, for her and sure. way, but but having done the play two times and having got a correspondence for her saying thank you, I feel comfortable saying this much. I believe that she centers anybody who sees this play to a place of understanding all of our humanities through one man. Mm. That she takes away all of the you know superpowers. You know, we, we live in a world where we want to see Avengers and and. Black Panthers. She takes all of that away and brings him down to a level where we can consciously see ourselves living vicariously through his life. All of our possible temptations or desires or thoughts. We may have not even acted them out, but we may have simply just thought about them. And moving away all of the political jarring associated with this man and all of the things in which he stood for which we all know were admirable we see the the human being in all of us struggling you know struggling with uh being understood struggling with understanding why the disproportional you know inequities of the world the imbalances of human thought and thinking about each other as human beings as god's children He's uh he's questioning his choices, you know. He's going up against very powerful people and oligarchies who control, you know, the economic and political landscape of the country. And he knows that his conscience cannot afford him not saying what he believes in his heart is wrong. And I think what Katori Hall does is shows us that we have those same potentials as human beings, not necessarily the, you know, large iconic figures that we read and hear about, you know, we don't, but we still have those potentials. Absolutely. You know, when I, I first saw this play probably in 2013, Mm. right as it was brand new. Mm. And I remember um, just kind of in relationship to what you're talking about right now, I remember feeling super uncomfortable watching Dr. King be a human being. Why? Because we have we have been in a way that I think he earned, he did earn. Like he's 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 an American icon. Yeah. Right? He is someone that we aspire to be. He's someone that we look up to. He's someone that um not only look up to but that we hold in very high regard. Yes. So to watch this play and to see him be so human, mm-hmm. um, cursing, angry, flirtatious, like all this stuff, I was like, "What are we? What is this play saying about?" Like, I, I was, I was um, wrestling with my perceptions of what I thought was good, mm-hmm. and, and 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 seeing things that I might 
like in a general way defined as bad. And then like leaving the play, I was like, oh, that was the point. <laughs> right. Like, exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Like the yeah. humanization of yeah. um, of Dr. King made me as I as I walked away from it, made me feel closer yeah. to him in a way. Like I think there's a danger a little bit when we myth when we when someone becomes mythic. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so what do you think what happens when we see Well, I think that's exactly what, you know, going back to your first question, I think that's exactly what she was up to in some regard. Do you think that makes this play controversial? I don't think it makes it controversial at all. I think the controversy is within the individual, uh-huh. you know, because the, the the larger intelligent audience understands it. We know that, uh, you know, all of the, you know, the, the, the holy, the scriptures that we study talk about these, you know, paramounts of things that you have to do that go defy what we are taught to do. You know what I mean? Right. And I think that's what this play does. It takes the hypocrisy of what we say that we want and it puts you in that situation and say, okay, now if you said this, then you have to be this. And if you're not this, then you're that. And I think we get into those tug of wars of right and wrong. And I think she strips away, as I was trying to describe earlier, she strips strips away all of that and allows us to just kind of analyze ourselves and our truths. And that's what I think is happening. And I think that's what makes us uncomfortable. And that uncomfortability comes from within you and your uncomfortabilities about your belief systems. Anytime you take somebody's belief system and you show them how it may be off, you put them in a very unparalleled state. They just cannot comprehend. I've been believing this all along. And now you're telling me that Dr. King was this. And that makes anybody. And that's the same thing. You know, when you grow up and you you realize, oh, man, I believed all this time that, you know, this person was this person. Then when you find out that they're not, it makes you very unstable. It makes you very off balance. And I think that's important because that's a very key moment of growth Mm. for anyone. If you can get away from, you know, judgmental, particularly yourself, that world of hypocrisy and just analyze it as this is what it is. And, you know, in a biblical sense, you know, God didn't choose these, you know, you know, these megalithic figures, you know, we see all of those, you know, obelisks in Egypt, these towering figures of these pharaohs. I didn't choose any of those in, in, in the Bible to do great things. He went to people who didn't really have those resumes, Mm. you know, and I think that's, you know, when we see the good of, of righteousness, we want to put it in a place where, but, you know, Jesus walked amongst folks that didn't have credentials, you know, and I think that's part of what Katori Hall does in her genius of writing this. She shows us how, you know, we want to believe these great things, but in the reality of it all, you know, we're just these people who have the potential to move mountains. All of us, we have the potential to transform minds when we find the courage within ourselves to believe in the possibilities. And I think that she unshaped Dr. King's perspective, how we see him intentionally and deliberately for us to understand that 
it was more than just an assassination. It was more than just a sacrifice. You know, my mentor said, it's not how long you live, it's how deep you live. Mm. What do you do with the time that you're here? And what risk are you willing to take, even though it could jeopardize your longevity? I think Dr. King's famous line, longevity has its place, but I'm not worried about that now. Because I've been to the mountain and I've, you know, I've gone to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land. You know, he's saying all of these things, you know, the mountaintop is the title of the play. But in that, she really unravels that historic speech and tells us how <laughs> we're all standing on the mountaintop, every one of us. And we all have the potential to transform lives. And I think that's what the play ultimately says to us when we walk away. There's a baton, pick it up and pass it on. Mm. And that's, you know, we take what was Dr. King's life about? And we know that he had a cause, nonviolence for equality for all people. And then that becomes this thing within itself. And then you have Dr. King. And then we want to merge those two things together, those two great ideas together. But when you separate them, you see all the struggles that come with that. A man who has to struggle with his, you know, his flesh, you know, um, the idea of everything being available for everyone in a capitalistic society that was very young at that time, was on the cusp of all of these things that could determine world powers. You know, um, this was a very... Um, violent time in, in American history, you know? And so when, when you're in a time when everybody's doing the same thing, which is violent, it became very appealing to pick up arms and fight back. And in that time, he was a lone ranger standing by himself saying, but radical love can weaponize you just as powerful, if not more than picking up a gun. And even now, when we look at the violence in our, in our society now, you know, you said he was a national icon. I would say he was an international icon. Mm -hmm. There was a church in England that wanted to have him come over there and, and just get away from all of what the mess that was going on for African-Americans in the country and just, you know, come over there and just escape it. And many of our artists and many of our writers and, 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 and musicians went to Europe to escape the injustices that were being, uh, you know, doing that time. But he said, no, this is. You know, this is my workshop. This is where I'm going to stay. And he knew the consequences of that. So the world knew that what he was saying, you know, was just as powerful as, you know, other iconic figures that he admired, Gandhi and other people in, you know, in the world, in history, had said that this is the right way to go. That appealing to the love in the heart of people is the only solution to end this hatred. Right. Mm hmm. And that wasn't the popular story during that time because we were in a state of violence. You know, our, our country was at war and there were a lot of people. This is the other part I wanted to say who stood to gain a lot of money because of the war. And so when he spoke out against the war, he also was speaking to the economics democracy. And that's what really put him. That's what really put the. The, the target, the bullseye on his, on his, on his person, because he was challenging the 
economic democracy of this country that was off balanced, you know, and, you know, prior to the civil rights movement in the 60s, in the 40s, we had like the highest movement of unions and trade unions and the acquisition of control and going up against major corporate companies, you know, and that fizzled out, but it was the predecessor for the civil rights movement, you know, so him coming to Memphis, speaking on behalf of sanitation workers who were not even making enough money, they were still, they were working overtime and not getting paid. They were making a lot of hours, a lot of contribution under poor working conditions, and they were still considered below the poverty line. Mm -hmm. You know, so he was addressing something that was attacking, you know, the power structure, the economic structure, the banking systems, the, you know, the, the corporate powers of this world. When he started talking about that, he stripped the people like, well, you're straying away from what you started out talking about. And he did not want to be quarantined to just saying, I'm the spokesperson for black people. He's like, I'm the spokesperson for what is right. And there are a lot of people who fall under that umbrella, you know, and um, I love what he wrote or someone wrote where he said, it was okay for me to say, be nonviolent to black folks when white people were putting sicking dogs and hoses on you. But when I say be nonviolent and stop killing brown babies in Vietnam, now I'm a bad person. Mm. So, you know, he spoke out against injustice. He said, if injustice is happening over there and you do nothing, you're just as bad as the injustice that is being done to you. So he was bigger than the movement. And he was trying to get the people within the movement who were still suffering under the, the injustices of racism in this country to kind of care about not only themselves, but other people. And I don't think we were quite there yet. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the other leaders of the country, the voices of that time, were really consciously aware of what the significance of what he was trying to tell us is that that uniting all poor people will have a greater opportunity to kind of reveal the real people who are kind of, you know, staging this thing. Because if you can convince and that's what I feel like that's what's going on right now. If you can if you can convince if you can convince white people that black people are after them and that they're trying to take their jobs or take their opportunities, then you let the people who are really in control off the hook, mm -hmm. which are the corporate conglomerates who set all that up because they're going to benefit from paying people low wages. They're going to benefit from people feeling like someone else is taking. And that's been the narrative in American history for years. You know, they, the Irish were going, you know, against, you know, and all and slavery was attacking wage jobs. I mean, that has been a telltale story that's been repeated, you know, rehashed over and over. And Dr. King was really talking about something on a larger scale. Yeah. You know, he used the term, you know, we had a blank check. He was talking about big, big money coming back to the people who had sacrificed to build this country. And they didn't, they didn't want to hear that. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the people who were part of his movement and the people who were following him, they really weren't on board with that either. So he kind of put himself in a very peculiar situation. And I think he was at that place where he was saying, if I can galvanize this movement and show people the success of these sanitation workers here in Memphis, mm -hmm. 
that will go along with the other, you know, events that are happening across the country. And we can bring everybody together on the Washington Monument and talk about the Poor People's Campaign. But we never got to see the results of that because of that tragic day. Mm -hmm. So just kind of as a last question and thinking about all of that, um, the play's fiction. And we talked about how, you know, you see you meet like the very human Dr. Keene in a way that that I, everyone that sees it is going to wrestle with. They, they have, you're right. It's your own personal wrestling match. Is And I think great plays do that. Yeah. They make you wrestle mm-hmm. with who, with you. Right. Um, but do you think the like the, the, this this direct humanization of Dr. King on that night affirms or challenges his legacy and what does it mean for us now seeing him that way well i think one of the lines i love katori hall wrote was she said um she allowed dr king to say in this play the the responsibility of this movement of what has to happen for you know our world to understand the importance of nonviolence and radical love is beyond my image. He's, mm. She said, my image can no longer bear this. It's bigger. You know, and, you know, I, I, I go back to, you know, my upbringing, Southern Baptist Church, and how, you know, Christ said that you will do things bigger than me. You know, that, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, you'll do, you'll do miracles greater than me. And I think that that's, it's not challenging it. And if it is, it's challenging us to say, okay, now it's your turn. Mm. You have an obligation Mm -hmm. to understand that if you allow yourself to continue to believe that, you know, Dr. King was this iconic figure that you have been told to believe, then you will never allow yourself to be put in the situation to take on the responsibilities to which he did. Mm -hmm. You'll always say, I don't have, you know, a Batman or superhero, Superman cape. That's not me. I don't come from that family of people who have that kind of intelligence. I don't have the money. I don't have the resources. I didn't graduate from this college. You'll create all the things that you will need to tell yourself, I'm not Dr. King. And I don't have the responsibility or obligation to pursue the kind of level of change that he was telling us could happen could exist so i believe that by you know taking that away and allowing the audience to hear and see a person who had just as much vulnerabilities as you but he still took on the responsibility now he's leveled the playing field and you have a choice to make having been informed that you know it's not really you know that much of a stretch for you and be a change agent or an aggravator or an instigator. And I think if it does on the other side create, you know, some disgruntled feelings, let's have some disgruntled discussions. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's where <laughs> that's where we are right now in, in our country. That it's time for people, you know, to get in some, you know, environments and really stop being so nice to each other and start talking about the kinds of things that are on our heart 
that we feel no one else will understand. And I think that's what happens between these two incredible characters. We talked a lot about Dr. King. We haven't talked about the amazing Camay. About Camay, yeah. You know, she breaks him down and re- lets him realize that even though we come from these two different classes and we're opposite gender and those kinds of things, our value systems, our belief systems, our attitudes about what we think is best equal the same outcomes, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. She has already rendered herself to understand the importance of why she's there. I won't say what, <laughs> but you know her character is is not all of the same ideologies of Dr. King, and so there's this back and forth of conversation that gets heated, which I love. You know, and she can hold her own, which I love. But I think that's symbolic of the kinds of conversations that we have to have. Different people need to get in the room with different opinions and from dis- different socioeconomic backgrounds, from different class, from different attitudes and cultures and have conversations with each other that are not just there to make us feel good, but there to try to get to some understanding. Yeah. You know, you know, I, I've done a lot of reading about some of the great works in the collaborate collaborations of movies and films and, and plays. And in those labs there's a lot of heated discussions there's a lot of arguments there's a lot of anger there's a lot of violence but out of that look what comes this great and you know and then you have to have what dr king was telling all of us the ability to say i'm sorry the ability to forgive the ability to start over you know put it back on the potter's wheel and let it start and create again and not hold on to these historical belief systems of you know, racism and prejudice that don't serve us anymore. The only thing they do is serve some some outdated history book that nobody's ever read anyway. Right. Right. We we need something that's going to revitalize the spirit of this country because what we've seen doesn't work. Right. Mm -hmm. What we've seen doesn't work, but we'll never see what can work if we're so afraid of each other, so afraid of having indifferences so afraid of offending one another so i would say if this play offends you you know bring your butt back sit down and let's have a talk about it and let's get to why because i think the why can improve all of us the understanding of what rubs you wrong what you know electrifies your trigger what makes you feel you know marginalized or displaced or other when you awaken us in the conversation, when those conversations are happening and people are truthful and honest, then we're getting somewhere. Then yeah. we grow. You know, we begin to elevate and we go to the mountaintop. Yeah. You know. That's well said. Yeah. That's well said. I and I agree. Come back and talk to us. Come back and share. For sure. You know. That's the way we do it. And and I and I, I you know, I just also love what you're saying is like when we when we wait to be as perfect as the image that we've created as of Dr. King, we allow ourselves off the hook. Yeah. yeah. But when you see the play and you realize, no, no, we're all human. He was human. I'm human. Yeah. And I can like you said it the best. I, I don't know why I'm repeating it, but I just love it, which is like, well, are you going to take responsibility? Yeah. Because it's easy to shirk the responsibility when you think, well, I'm not him. Yeah. But when you see him. And he looks like you. Yeah. You start to go, oh, yeah. I, I do have a responsibility in this. And I think that 
for me, like too, like speaking to the time we're in, like we need to we need to all confront that it, it's up to all of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, and I, I would if I have time to add something. Yeah. You, you brought something to my attention. The other thing is, uh, you know, he he talks about and. They both talk about you know the vanity, you know, yeah, right. And if you and if you think about just yourself, we all have this sense of, you know, and and you know we grew up hearing put your best foot forward, right, make a good impression, right, and that kind of takes us down the road of being perfect, right, right. And we understand the tragedy of perfectionism, right. And there's a strong difference. Well, there's there's a very important difference, in my opinion, of someone trying to always look perfect, always trying to look good. And I think that's the image that was presented to us because we know the sacrifice. We know the wrongs that we were in as a country. We should listen to this man. So instead of acknowledging that, you know, we, we made some blunders with Vietnam and some other things that we shouldn't have done. You know, we realized that, you know, at the time segregation was a law, but we understand, you know, how it impacted our country and how it slowed us down, made us inefficient. We understand, you know, that education was off balance. And so and voting rights and all these things we still struggle with today were wrong. And so we, we kind of fixed them with policy, but we didn't really own up to it. But we can take a guy who made the sacrifice and say that he was perfect. And we realize that that's just not the case. Because if we if we go along that journey and try to be perfect, then we can't fail. And if we can't fail, then we won't go into that room and have that discussion and be wrong. Right. You see what I'm saying? Yep. But there's another concept of being excellent. And excellent is different than fail, than perfection because excellent allows you to fail. Yeah. And through making that mistake and honoring that you are okay with being wrong and making mistakes, you get up, you improve upon the mistakes that you've made. You look back on the history and you have a value system of what you didn't do right. And you acknowledge that, which is a healing within itself. Mm -hmm. Right. And then so now you improve upon your errors. You allow yourself to be shaped by the errors that you're willing to make. You're not standing up in front of everybody saying that everything that comes out of your mouth is perfect and right. And you should believe it. You, you step up before you and say, I'm human. And as a human, I'm imperfect and I can make mistakes, but I can grow and learn for those and be excellent at what I do because my experiences have taught me how to be the best at what I am because I've made some wrong moves. Mm-hmm. You're not saying I'm perfect. You're not saying I don't make mistakes. You're not saying I can't fail. You're saying I did that, done that, and I'm better for it. And watch me now. You know. So that's one of the things I think we, we draw from this piece, that we can look at a man who wasn't perfect, who did make mistakes, but if we can learn from his wisdom in his errors. We can be excellent and we can be better and we can not make the same colossal mistakes as a as a country yeah. that we've done in our past. We just shape it and call it something else. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you for your time, Philip. I'm super Always excited. Always a pleasure. Y- y'all have to come see this play. Come you just check have it out. To, you have to check it out. Yes, sir. All right. Thanks, man. 
All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Philip Bernard Smith, who is the director of The Mountaintop. Again, come see the show June 10th through 19th in the Stevenson Amphitheater. We'll be so excited to see you there. And we're also planning some other community engagement events around this show. So uh, make sure you take a look at our website, RileighLittleTheater.org, to find out when you can participate in those. And you can also visit that site to grab your tickets now. We'll see you at the theater.